Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a very, very important and special guest in front of me over Zoom. Um, where shall I begin? This guy has uh, been in film since 1992, I believe, as an independent filmmaker. He's had a you know, very successful documentaries and films, including The Shadow Man, which I'm going to talk to him immensely about and what's next to come. Constantine Sword, uh, Sister Rose's Passion. I mean, you've had a, a number of awards, including at the Tribeca Film Festival. So, uh, Oren Jacoby, welcome to the Stephen Sully Study and also Woodbury House. Thank you very much for your time. Great to be here. Thank you, Steve. So, let's talk about film just for one second before we talk about Hamilton and the Shadow Man documentary. Um, why did you decide that you wanted to become a film director? That's a great question. Uh, I have to say it's when I was a college kid, they were they were giving a course in filmmaking that my roommate dragged me down to the to the first meeting of the class because he wanted to get in and he knew that I, you know, was addicted to going to movies and thought if he hung out with me and I was there with him when he was, you know, they were they were selecting people to be in this class because it was going to be a small class. And uh, I just on a whim decided to take the class too and started making films when I was 18 years old and loved it. And uh, it happened that the best teacher who was doing it was making documentary films. So that's the kind of film that I started making and uh, started doing it in college and really never stopped. Okay, interesting. I mean, when I was growing up, um, you know, in school, I think the, the dream, the almost a bit of sort of fantasy was to become either someone like a Hollywood actor, someone in film, because it was very glamorous. You know, you used to watch the, the TV. This is way before social media and look at the newspapers and just see all the Hollywood actors. And it just seemed amazing like Hollywood. Or you would think about being becoming some kind of, uh, you know, um, athlete, boxing, football, what you guys call soccer. Uh, something, something along those lines. And um, is it as glamorous as people make out? Is is the Hollywood, the film industry, as glamorous as most people perceive? Well, first of all, the the documentary, the nonfiction film world, is very separate from the Hollywood fiction film world. They're very different. I think okay. Hollywood is glamorous, in at least on the surface. <laughs> uh, a lot of things we you know we know or that look glamorous aren't really that all that glamorous once you get to be in the middle of it. It's just like real life, but more expensive uh, cocktails. Um, yeah. But uh, the documentary film world is a, is a kind of a different strand and it's not as glamorous, although it's in recent years been given some of the glamorous trappings in terms of at festivals, you know, at, at all the big festivals, the documentaries are always given a lot of attention at Sundance, at Tribeca, Toronto. Um, and, uh, you know, that makes, little aspect of documentary filmmaking glamorous, but the actual doing of it, it's just, it's hard work. I mean, it's very, very hard making documentaries. It's hard getting money to make any kind of film, but even harder to get money for documentaries because they don't make as much money, even if they're successful. Um, but it's exciting work and we love it. And uh, you're always delving into some new, new world. And that's what happened to me with Richard Hamilton in this film, Shadow Man, is, I was just lucky enough to open a door onto a, a world I'd never had conceived of or dreamed of and was able to bring in my camera and start filming it. 
Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to really get into the nuts and bolts of the, that conversation. Just before I do, I want to give the audience a bit of um, background to you then. So quite clearly, you, you, you know, you're from the United States of America. I see that you went to, is it Yale University? I went to Yale University for my graduate school. Where I studied directing theater, actually. Um, okay. And I got my start, although I'm from the States, I got my start as a filmmaker, my first big, big boost in the UK, working for a series for the BBC called The Second Russian Revolution, where I'd, I'd studied Russian in college and could speak Russian fairly well and had made some films and had gone doing some filming in when it was still the Soviet Union. And so when someone I knew at the BBC was doing a series, um, they brought me in and I was able to do uh, four films for a, uh, ended up being a nine part series called The Second Russian Revolution about Gorbachev and then what turned out to be the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall. We all covered in that, in that incredible series of films. How was your time in the UK? I love the UK. I loved living in London. Uh, I lived up in Highgate and our office was in, in Camden Town, which was a very cool part of London. I don't know what it's like there now, but in the, when I was back in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of good music and uh, it was kind of a cool scene in, in Camden and, and uh, I had a great time living in London. I love London. Yeah, Camden is thriving. Um, you probably remember an area called Shoreditch. Yep. I mean, these are areas that uh, at once upon a time were written off. You know, people didn't really want to go there. Uh, yeah. Property prices were, were low, uh, quite controversial areas, you know, you know, could be quite dangerous at times. And don't get me wrong, probably at some point, at some parts it still could be, but now they're thriving, you know, restaurants, great hotels, great nightlife, um, great atmosphere, great energy. I, you know, it's, it's, it's really booming place. And, it brings us back to you know this conversation about Hamilton because so many great artists have uh, got their inspiration in Shoreditch and places like Camden. And uh, our edit room for the last part of the process was in was in Ladbroke Grove, which people in London today will be shocked to know that that was a kind of dicey neighborhood back then, which is now you know as I understand it, one of your more elegant parts of London. Uh, was then you know it was it was. You know, one of our, our producers had a house there and that's why our edit room was there. Um, but it was because, you know, he found a great place that wasn't that expensive. And, uh, you know, cities change. And that's what's fabulous about, you know, being able to be in a city like London or New York. They keep evolving and they keep they keep finding ways to reinvent themselves and reclaim neighborhoods that have been, you know, not taken advantage of and can be not gentrified, but made livable for everybody. Mm. I mean, that area, Holland Park, Notting Hill, all, all around them sort of, sort of areas, they, they are, you know, high end, very, very expensive properties around there. And I, I know exactly where you're talking about Labrador Grove. It's, um, it's a cool, cool part of town. Yeah. Um, bit of a basic question here, but someone has asked me to ask you, um, how does the film industry work? How does the film industry work? Well, um, I mean, it's it's very driven now by these big, powerful corporations, sadly, like a lot of other parts of the world, where Amazon and Netflix um, and Apple, uh, you know, have moved into film production, and they, you know, are control. You know, they have. It's good because they're channeling a lot of money into the industry. 
Um, but they're also, you know, they have certain things they're looking for, certain things that are driven by what they think is the market. And, um, you know, and then as there's always been in the film industry, there's an independent part of the industry, which is not so much controlled by the corporations. And the, the films that, you know, continue to thrive come, many of them come from that, you know, more offbeat, more non-commercial end of things. Um, okay. And people are willing to take risks and do stories that maybe, uh, you know, a big corporation isn't going to invest in, but you know it's a great story, and so you're willing to take a risk. So, with the age of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple, all these massive corporations, I mean, there's upsides clearly, and I, I even benefit as a consumer from them. But there's got to be a downside somewhere. So, my next question is this. Will film as we know it now ever die out? Well, I think it's going to change. I mean, look, I think, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be putting Netflix and Amazon down because that's how my films get seen. You know, my, my last few films have been on those platforms because they, they're looking for the, for the good quality films. And Amazon is the main distributor of Shadow Man. Um, and it's important that they do exist because it means a lot more people can see the films than see them in theaters. I mean, both of my, you know, three or four of my last films have all had, had online streaming platforms, but they've also been in theaters and a certain number of people will get to see them in a theater. And that's great. And we, I hope that that'll never go away, but it does seem to be in danger right now because people, whatever the, you know, the, the, coronavirus hasn't helped it's made you know it's done a lot to stop people from going out to see movies and theaters but you know i think we just have to hope that people will appreciate what's great about that experience of being in a big room with other people seeing a movie on a big screen and with a great sound system and not just a you know a marvel comics movie but a movie like a great documentary can also be really appreciated in a different way in a theater so we hope that won't go away ever yeah, um, I, I certainly support what you're saying. I, I think I think you can't really beat going to the the theatre, cinema, and be, being around you know friends, family, but also strangers and feeling that energy. And when there's a funny part in the movie, scary part in the movie, or something that needs recognition, you want that energy from the crowd. And hopefully, uh, coronavirus doesn't rear its ugly head again, and uh, we we can just crack on with our lives. And hopefully, these massive corporations don't kind of suffocate the traditional way of doing stuff but only time will tell i guess uh Oren. well hopefully they'll see the value too of you know and i think some of them are of doing multi-platform distribution where they do it online but they stream it but they also put it in theaters and i think that there's value for both and hopefully they'll keep it going and in yeah. not just in cities but in small towns um you know i think people like to get out and go to the movies for sure for sure um as a director uh, there's so many important things that you're responsible for, but you, you said about raising money for documentaries or films. What what role do you play in raising money for your documentaries? Well, I'm often the producer as well as the director. And if if I have an idea that as a director I want to do something, then pretty much it's up to me to go out and raise the money to make it happen. Uh, I mean, I'm doing a film now about climate change and... Uh, you know, we found out about this story and we've been pursuing the idea for about a year and a half. Um, but no one was going to come to me and say, OK, here's two million dollars to go out and make this movie. 
I had to go and sort of dig around and find people who are interested and and pursue it and and come up with different ways of making it exciting to people until we found the right combination and now we're on our way where we're going to be beginning production soon. Um, but that's sort of what it's like every time. I mean, when you have a huge hit, uh, even in documentaries, it's kind of like blockbuster Hollywood movies. If you have a huge hit, then people come calling to you. And that's, you know, happened occasionally. I've been lucky enough where people have come to me and said, here's this great story. How'd you like to do a movie about this? I mean, uh, sort of in the middle of my career, I was really excited. Um, uh, the Beatles were coming out with their number one CD, number one hit CD. And someone came to me and said, hey, we're doing a documentary. The Beatles have, have uh, asked us to do a, a film to celebrate their careers and remind a new generation of what they're all about. And so I got to be one of the directors working on that 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 film, um, but that was a, you know that's the the novelty. It doesn't usually happen that way. Yeah, what I find really impressive, uh, and this is a bit of a rapport between me and you, is I'm not in, in into film or or uh, doing documentaries. Maybe one day, um, I'm actually going to ask you a question later on, but I'll, I'll I'll keep that in my pocket until we start speaking about the uh, the Shadow Man documentary and how that's going to evolve. Um, I'm a sales guy, you know, marketing. That's how I got into the Hamilton space in the first place. Basically, Annie approached me and said, what is it you do? And I said, sales and marketing. And he said, have you ever promoted art as a collectible kind of investment? I said, never done it in my life. And he said, well, I represent a guy who's been coined by the New York Times as the godfather of street art, a guy called Richard Hamilton. Have you heard of Banksy? And I said, well, of course. And he said, well, Banksy got his inspiration from my guy, Richard Hamilton. Why don't you take some of his work and see what you think? In actual fact, the Shadow Man documentary wasn't finished at that point, but there was a trailer, seven minute trailer, and I had the pleasure of watching it. Me and my dad watched it one night, seven minutes long. And for me, it gives such a great overview and taste and flavor to what that whole documentary is about. And I was so compelled by the story, thanks to you, uh, Oren, I ended up buying a piece and I still own that piece today with my father. Well, that's and cool. anyway, you know, I just, I said to myself, this is my calling. I mean, this is the right product. This is the right narrative. I can see the vision. I can see where this is going. You've got Andy, you've got all these credible people surrounding Hamilton. We, we've got to do something here. And I never look back. So I would see myself still as like a sales promoter, you know, uh, marketing individual. And in some ways you're the same because you've got to raise money for a concept and an idea that let's be honest, you know, most films and documentaries probably do fail. Um, you've got to be confident in your own ability, your own experience, and also, you know, the product you're going to put out to raise that money. And we're not talking about small amount of money here. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars. Um, how did you, you know, come up, you know, how did you build that kind of skill set and mindset to raise so much money for documentaries and films? I mean, it's really just desperation. It's like it's, <laughs> you know, and it's it's what you you, you know. As I said, I started doing this in college, and uh, I learned that if you have a great story and you believe in it and you put in the work, people will recognize your work and they'll recognize the value of of telling exciting stories. And eventually, you'll find it if you care enough. And you know, look, every film I've made, there have been five or ten that I've thought about or tried to raise money for or had an idea <clears throat> that never came to, into being. Um, so you don't win every fight, but you, 
you know, you keep fighting for the ones you believe in. And sometimes a story just gets its hook in you. And that's what happened with, to me with, with Richard Hamilton and Shadow Man. I mean, I was invited by a friend to show up one day uh, at, you know, the first exhibit of Richard's work in a long time in New York that Andy was involved in. Um, and my friend had had a number of photographs that were in the show. And so I went down to see the, these pictures and I was just blown away. And I was lucky enough that I'd been living in the neighborhood where Richard had first painted his shadows. I guess this was in, you know, we're talking 2010, 2009, 2010. Uh, it had been, you know, back in 1980 when, when Richard had first painted those things in the Lower East Side and Tribeca and down in the West Village. And that's when I lived downtown in New York and had seen a bunch of the work when it was first done. And so I was very, very excited to suddenly see this stuff and, uh, you know, and, and then realize, oh, that's who did it. Because when it was up there on the walls in New York City in the 80s, people didn't know who the guy was. Um, yeah. So then they, I was invited to his studio and maybe I'm good. Well, I'm getting ahead of the, the storytelling here. Maybe you want to hold off on this. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the, the point was just when a story gets its hooks in you, sometimes your common sense tells you to let go, but you know, you just are into telling the story and so you keep on doing it. Uh, I remember when I did a film called Sister Rose's Passion that was about a 80 year old nun who was living in a assisted living facility. My wife asked me, what are you working on? And I told her this story she said, who's gonna care about a movie about a 85 year old nun? And it ended up being you know, nominated for an Oscar. So you just never know. Yeah. But you have to trust your instincts. You have to. You have to. If you've uh, if you've got that uh, inner kind of um, gut feeling that something's going to go right, you've got to run with it for sure. And that was like me with with Hamilton. So I think this is the perfect moment to kind of segue into the the Richard Hamilton story. Um, I've given you a bit of my story, how I found myself right place, right time, and. Um, about three years ago, uh, Oren, as I mentioned over a message, I, uh, I started doing podcasts. Um, initially, the Stephen Sully study was about interviewing entrepreneurs, athletes. I'm, um, I'm a boxer. Uh, I do boxing. So I had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of boxers, uh, footballers or soccer stars, a few rugby players, uh, track and field kind of people. And then I started interviewing artists. And that led me on to some of Hamilton's affiliates. So there's a guy called Days who used to tag the name Samo, same as Jean-Michel Basquiat. One of um, Hamilton's tenants is a guy called Christopher uh, Ellis, who goes by the tag name called Days. I've interviewed Crash, Cope, uh, LA2. You know, LA2 is obviously in a documentary. He, he speaks, I think, on the trailer. Or Angel Ortiz, his name is. Um, and so many art dealers, you know, uh, Nemo Labrizzi. I'm, I'm gutted I never had the opportunity to interview Rick because I heard he was a great man. Uh, I interviewed Mike Melbourne, who owned Frank Chop Shop, and I mean, the list is endless. It's, it's, and what I love about it is everybody's got like so many different unique stories about Hamilton. All of them say about how crazy he was, but also at the same <laughs> time, they're all saying how, what a genius he was. And, he was ahead of his time, you know, he really paved the way for so many other artists and individuals. He gave so much inspiration uh, to, 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 to the street art community. So, um, yourself, uh, Oren, I, I mean, would you call yourself a street art fanatic? Would you call yourself a Hamilton fan? Uh, I'm a 
band. I, they're artists who I really love. I love JR. I love Banksy. I love, uh, you know, a lot of the early, you know, Basquiat, Keith Haring stuff. Um, I think they're, it's an amazing, uh, you know, genre of art. And they're just fabulous neighborhoods where all over the world where this has become you know, such a, a fun thing that draw people and again, revitalize a city because the art is there and people come and spend money and hang out and want to be a part of it. Uh, down in Miami, you know, there's this whole neighborhood, you know, west of the main strip of, of Miami where there's just unbelievable block after block, block of huge, enormous murals, um, just really great street art. So when it's good, I love street art. And what's attracted you? Uh, what's attracted you to Richard Hamilton's work itself? Well, as I, I mentioned, I happened to to see Richard's work when I came moved back to New York um, in 1980 uh, after I'd been in college and moved down to stay with some friends in this sort of very desolate neighborhood. Then that was they were just beginning to call Tribeca. It was a few blocks below Canal Street on a street called. White Street and Broadway, um, and went out of the house one day, and the first thing I, you know, saw that that I discovered later had been done by Richard was one of these murder mass murder mystery images, where he basically it looked like a crime scene, like a police crime scene, where there was a a body, an outline of a body, and in the middle of the of that chalk out looked like a chalk outline was a splash of of blood, it looked like blood. It was turned out it was red paint. And the, you know, the first time I saw this, I like jumped. It was just, you know, it was at nighttime in the city in a desolate neighborhood where there was, you know, was not the safest city in the world back then, New York, uh, in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. And, um, you know, at first I was a little scared, but then something about it didn't seem scary. Something about it seemed to be like it was for fun or it was a joke or it was art. And I, you know, you were wondering what, what is it? And then a few weeks later, I saw another one in another part of the city. Um, and I realized, okay, this, some guy is doing this and this is, it just was seemed very cool. Um, and then not sure, not long after that, I started to see the shadows that were just these images on a wall. Again, you'd like be walking down a street at night and suddenly this thing would appear before you and uh, you wouldn't have really no where did it come from, what it was doing there. At first, it could even look like there was an actual human being standing there. And then we'd realize, no, it's something that's painted on the wall. And again, the first time you saw it, you're scared and you don't know what it is. And the second or third time, you guys start to get it. Oh, somebody's doing this. And it became kind of fun and you'd look for them. Um, so flash forward 30 years, my friend invites me to a studio in... Uh, in the same, not far away in the same neighborhood where someone had put up a big art exhibit that had been sponsored by Giorgio Armani. It couldn't have been you know, more of a world away from those first images. And it was a very glitzy scene with models and investment bankers and everybody coming to see this art. And there were these same images. There were photographs of the shadows that had been taken by my friend Hank O'Neill that were these incredible large mural photographs showing the shadows on the streets of New York. And then there were the paintings when Richard had started to put these same kinds of images on canvas. And in addition to the shadow paintings, there were the amazing cowboy rodeo figures. There were the beautiful paintings, the so-called beautiful paintings with the name of different women were the titles of the paintings. And they were these sort of abstract landscapes in vivid, exciting colors. 
And then my favorite, these enormous wave paintings that felt like you were standing in the, you know, on a beach with a huge wave breaking right in front of you. Um, and so I was just blown away by the work. And then my friend Hank said, I'm going over to see Richard. Uh, why don't you come and why don't you bring your camera? And so I went to my production office, grabbed a little camera. I don't usually shoot my own films. I work with other really good cinematographers, but this was just, you know, I wasn't really going to make a film. I was just going because Hank asked me to bring my camera. So I walked in and started to see what was going on as Richard was working with Andy Valmorbida and his partner, Vladimir, to try to develop some art shows, some more art shows to follow up on the one that, that I'd just seen. And uh, I started filming their interactions and, you know, Richard ignored me, Andy and Vlad ignored me. They just let me stand there and film what was going on. And that's rare in of itself when you're a witness to a kind of an exciting interaction where nobody cares that you're filming. And if you can keep on doing it, you know, your instinct as a filmmaker says, keep going. And that's what happened. Incredible. I've, you know, I've, I've got to hear the first hand story directly from the horse's mouth, which is quite a rare thing as well, which is great. <laughs> um, have you ever collected any of Richard Hamilton's works? Uh, I, you know, I have several of, of Hank's photographs, I'm very happy to say. And at one point, Richard did give me a, a, a shadow head, which I'm not sure if it was, he was joking that he said, you know, it sort of looks like it could be, could have been me. But uh, he said, I want you to have this. And uh, he gave it to me, you know, uh, down in a, in a I'm, I was meeting him to talk about something else at a, at a diner down on, uh, Lower East Side, and he pulls in his, go reaches in his knapsack, and he pulled out a painting, a little shadow head, and he handed it to me and said, "I want you to have this one." So that's, uh, that's amazing. It. Yeah, amazing. Um, so Hamilton, uh, from your own experience, what do we, what do we maybe don't know about Hamilton that Oren Jacobi may know about Richard Hamilton from from your point of view? What do I, well, I mean, most of what I know about him is in the film. You know, I think he's, uh, I guess, maybe a side that, you know, you don't see that much in the film that would peep, peep out occasionally. He had a fabulous sense of humor. He was a kind of mischievous, kind of ironic, very clever, uh, very irreverent kind of guy who liked you know, making fun of things, liked sort of playing games with people, sometimes in a nice way, sometimes in a not so nice way. But, uh, you know, he, he was, he did have a sense of humor and he was very intelligent. Um, he was soft-spoken. Um, sometimes he would be a little pretentious or trying to show off when he was talking to, to certain people. But, uh, he really knew about art, I think. It was not, that was not a show. He, he was passionate about certain painters who had inspired him. Um, he was, you know, I think one people think of street art as something that's just graffiti. And he was very dismissive of graffiti as opposed to street art. And he was very proud of his technique as an artist. And his, you know, many of the, the important critics of his time marked him out as different from some of his other contemporaries by being a brilliant craftsman in terms of just his stroke, his brush stroke, the command that he had of 
putting a kind of sense of movement and excitement into painting, which had been gone, many people thought, from painting since the great abstract expressionists like, you know, de Koenig and um, Jackson Pollock and Franz Klein and Rothko. Here was the first painter who'd come along in the generation who brought that kind of exuberance and vitality to painting with just the brushstroke and the way he expressed himself and brought energy to the art form. And, uh, you know, and then he also had the kind of clever, surprising, conceptual thing that Andy Warhol and that generation of painters had. So I think what was one of the great things about Richard was how he brought these different worlds of art together and then he created something completely new. I mean, now people think of Basquiat and Herring as the great founders of street art, but Richard was doing it really before they were doing it. And when they were all three selling their art, although they are now billion dollar estates, partly because they both died so young, Richard's work maybe is not considered as valuable, but it is, you know, at the time, it sold for more money than, than their works did. I was going to say this, uh, actually. So there's two elements to the art market, really. There's the, the, the beautiful side of it, the collecting, um, decorating your home or your office, just really enjoying the narrative and everything about that artwork and the artist. But there is the, the financial aspects. You know, people buy it to preserve their money, make money, and, and flip their money onto bigger and better pieces for any artist, Banksy, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol, Picasso, Roy Lichtenstein, and, and of course, Richard Hamilton. Since his passing in 2017, how have you seen the demand for his work go up? Well, I know that they're getting a lot more money for, for Richard Hamilton paintings than they used to. I know that since he died and since the film came out, you know, he's become, there's a lot more knowledge about Richard and how special he is. And, uh, um, you know, I don't think he's in the same price category that those two guys are, but I think the values definitely increased. Um, and, you know, part of it is, you know, the other, the other part of art and value in art comes from the politics of the art world. And Basquiat and Keith Haring were both masters at playing the games of the art world. They both had, had art dealers who had kind of took them under their wing, knew they were happy to be sort of docile, obeying clients working for their for their their art dealers and richard never would enter in that kind of relationship he resented the idea that money was determining what kind of art people did and you know Boscott and herring would be churning out these works over and over again that people wanted and when people asked richard to churn out more shadows he started to paint things that were completely different he didn't want to do that and when Basquiat died his the great art dealer who had represented Basquiat, Mary Boone, came to Richard and wanted to represent Richard. And he brought her some of his new work that he was doing. And he said, I don't want to do those shadows anymore. And she basically kicked him out of the gallery. Um, at least that's the story that I was told by another art dealer who was you know, apparently privy to Richard had shared that story with him. Um, yeah, true. He's a true artist artist, as people say, you know, didn't do it for the fame, didn't do it for the money, or even really recognition. He done it because he wanted to paint a certain style and portray a certain narrative and certain story. And I think that's so um, commendable of him. I mean, that's the irony in a way about Richard is I think there was a part of him that, that did want that recognition. He did, you know, he was, you know, he did love being the star at the party. He did love being the guy who was in demand. He loved being able to, 
you know, you know, he 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 wanted, and he certainly loved the money. <laughs> he liked being able to, you know, drink champagne and eat caviar, and and as we know, consume a lot of drugs, which were expensive. Mm -hmm. But um, he, uh, it was just in his nature that he couldn't play the game that he needed to to do that the way most people do it, and so he couldn't help, you know, when when. There's so many stories I've heard of great opportunities where some big art dealer or some big collector was wanting to come and get Richard's work. And instead of, you know, giving them what they wanted, he would basically, you know, lock them out of his studio or he just wouldn't show up or he would, you know, do something to piss them off almost on purpose. Um, mm. And it was, you know, partly you could say, well, he had this self-destructive streak in his character, which was a kind of a pathology and a sad part of his nature, but it was partly just who he was as, a, as an irreverent character trying to thumb his nose. He couldn't resist being a bad boy. Yeah. So um, the nature of the beast with Hamilton could be quite difficult to work with. From your point of view, being a film director, a uh, uh, documentary director, um, was there challenges at some points dealing with him directly? Oh, it was it was a nightmare. I mean, at first, as I said, it was easy. He just let me come and go, and I came and I filmed, and nobody paid any attention. And then at a certain point, as the money started coming in and the demand for art started coming in, and I'm not sure which it was, I think it was more the money coming in and he was kind of dropping out a little bit. He just locked the door to his studio. And, you know, I was three or four months into the film, and I basically had to hang it up and said, I can't do this film because Richard's not letting me come in. Um, and that was going to be the end of it until about six months after that, I stumbled onto some of the archival footage that is in the movie that we found of Richard painting his early work. And when I saw that stuff and had actual images of him painting on the streets in the 1970s and 80s mm -hmm. and doing some of the incredible conceptual stuff, the mass murder mystery work and the other footage that we found, it was only when that happened that I realized, oh, well, I can now go back to Richard and say, look, man, We've got your story. We've got so much of this stuff. Let us back in. Let us tell your story. And he and so many of the friends and other painters and people who've been a part of his world, uh, you know, were willing to do that, that we were able to put the story together. Would you say that Andy Van Wolverdaal and his colleague Vladimir, were, were they the guys who came up with the idea of doing this documentary? Well, they, they uh, you know, I was able to, to partner with them it was you know, originally my idea to do it, but then when I kind of had given up, they were the ones who revived it. And the, the trailer you talk about was something that they asked me to do for um, the AMFAR found, you know, foundation that, that does a benefit for AIDS every year at the Cannes Film Festival. They really wanted to celebrate Richard one year and they were gonna auction off some of his art and Andy and Vlad were very involved in that effort. And so they came to me and they said, we know you've been filming Richard, could you put something together for us to show at the auction? And so that's the trailer that you and your dad saw that inspired you. And I guess it inspired people at the auction because they, they did very well. I know they sold a lot of paintings and made a, a bunch of money to fight AIDS. Well, uh, two paintings basically went for a million dollars, which back then is saying something, eh? I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Can you say it was a million pounds actually? Oh, really? Well, yeah. even better. <laughs> Can you see Hamilton's market? Because you, you mentioned earlier, Basquiat having multi-billion dollar establishments and uh, foundations and estates. 
Can you see Richard Hamilton's market going in the same direction as Jean-Michel Bastiat? I'm not enough of an expert on the art world to make any predictions. I mean, I know the work is great, and I think that great work gets discovered eventually, and so people are going to kind of rally around. And anybody who I ever have seen exposed to his work, and particularly then if they find out his story and the kind of dramatic story and struggle and fight that he had to do to, to do that work, I think, um, you know, he's going to have a following always. I definitely support what you're, what you're saying, and I agree. Lauren, someone, I've never asked this, but I've always thought it, and I know it might sound a bit obvious, but I want to hear it directly from you. Um, who came up with the idea, whose decision was it to call the documentary The Shadow Man? Well, it's not The Shadow Man, it's just Shadow Man. Shadow Man, yeah. Shadow Man. Um, uh, I mean, it's what I called it from the the get-go just when i first started filming it that sort of seemed to me the right and it almost at times i thought well i should come up with something better because it's too spot on um but it's so kind of it's the subject of so much of the work and it's kind of rings true for who richard was he really was a shadow man that's what he wanted to be um uh you know and i think the image in those paintings is also something that's a kind of for more that I've learned about Richard and his childhood and growing up, it was something that was a image that was a representing something very deep in his psyche of, of uh, you know, demons that he was fighting and stuff that he had to deal with that couldn't help but come out in his art. The other um, individuals on that on on the documentary Shadow Man, Nima Labrizi, Rick Labrizi, the Woodwoods, Andy Balmorbida. Vladimir, I mean, these are all very cool individuals, people that have played a significant part to Richard's uh, market and legacy. And don't forget Meta Madsen, who's, you know, was one of the loves of Richard's life, who helped come back into his, his life at the time that Andy and Vlad were working with him and helped them kind of coax Richard into parting with some of his greatest work and that he was, you know, almost hoarding and didn't want people to buy, but that she, you know, helped him stay productive, keep painting, and to, you know, help get some of that work out into the world. For sure. And then there's other people like Bob Murphy, for example. You know, there's so many key individuals that had segments in Hamilton's life. Some were short and some were, you know, still, you know, very long. Some people still still working on his market today and they're doing some great things. Um, you know, how did you get all these individuals to agree to be a part of the Shadow Man, uh, the Sh Shadow Man documentary and... Um, what were they like working with these individuals? I mean, everybody was very, very cooperative and easygoing. And I think they did it out of, you know, their admiration and love for Richard. Um, you know, the, uh, the um, you know, both friends of Richard's, collectors of Richard, even people, as you say, like Bob Murphy, who I think kind of shamefully took advantage of Richard um, in, you know, somewhat questionable business deals. They were happy to participate and very open about what they had done. I mean, Bob Murphy tells himself in the, in the film the story of how he kind of went back on his agreement with Richard and that Richard really never got his, his fair share of the money that, that uh, Bob made from those paintings. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, Rick Labrizi, sorry, Nima Labrizi, um, 
Yeah, Andy's been great. We we talk to Andy every single day because quite naturally he owns the Richard Hamilton Foundation. I'm tired of he's doing some great things. I mean, he's got so much, so much planned. I mean, he's very, very exciting. But someone that I think is just real authentic to the art market is is Nemo Labrizzi. Um, you must have had a lot of conversations with Nemo. You must have had a lot of engagements with him and spoke spoke to him, him about you know him and his father and what they contributed towards the art market and what they still are contributing towards the art market with. Well, I know that Nemo, first of all, Nemo's an incredible character because he is, you know, an, as you say, an authentic street artist himself. I mean, he was down in the subways with that first generation of incredible subway graffiti artists, you know, being chased by the police. And he was like a kid. I don't think he was even a teenager yet when he started hanging out with those guys. And he just, his dad was, you know, uh, uh, an artist, an art dealer, and open to his kid living a somewhat, you know, unconventional lifestyle and let him or wasn't able to stop him from hanging out and going down in the subway yards and, and painting on trains when it was, you know, deadly dangerous to do so. Um, so that, I mean, just that part of Nemo's life gives him incredible credibility of somewhat questionable sense in, in my mind, <laughs> um, yeah. which you can't help but, uh, but have regard for. And then he's also someone with, I know, experience in film. He's, he's been a filmmaker and he painted, actually did, collaborated with Richard. I didn't meet too many people. Richard clearly took Nemo under his wing at some point and they would go out and do street paintings together. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I know that he was the person that, you know, helped introduce Andy and Vlad to Richard, which proved to be the biggest, you know, break for Richard's late career, um, that he was able to work with those those guys and that they facilitated all those amazing shows that happened between 2011 and, and 27 or 18. Yeah, I think he's a great guy. He's been on my podcast. I mean, he's, he, he's a top, top man. And um, I'll, I'll save the next bit uh, about the Hamyard Hotel on the 29th of October in, in, you know, for, you know, for later on in this conversation, but yeah, he's, he's coming over to contribute. And um, more about the, the, the documentary. It's on Amazon Prime right now. And I've yeah. seen it uh, a billion times. And, um, you know, it won an award in 2017 uh, at the Tribeca Film Festival. So my question to you, was the Shadow Man documentary as successful as you planned? Well, again, when I make a film, I can't really be thinking about how successful it's going to be. I mean, I know that's the way Hollywood works. Um, as a filmmaker, I... You know, I do it because I'm passionate about doing it and I like telling the stories and I hope that there's going to be an audience. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit disappointed. There's a thing in, in documentary films right now where films about people who are famous do better than films about people who aren't well known. That's just the reality. It's like the way the marketing works. If you have famous names, you can get your film out there. If it's or if it's a story that, you know, hits the zeitgeist right on the bullseye of that moment. It could be someone who's not known, but who would just fits what is everybody interested in right now. And then that happens. And then there's an audience waiting to jump on that. You know, we were telling a story about a, a kind of art. There'd already been a movie about Banksy. There'd already been movies about Basquiat, you know, several years before ours. It was not like we were breaking new ground about street art. So it didn't have the kind of sudden impact that we, you know, might dream in the best of all possible worlds a movie would have. But I'm so happy that it got a theatrical run all over the United States, that it's available to people, can still watch it on Amazon. Um, you know, 
and uh, uh, I, you know, I actually lost a fair amount of money making the film because I had to end up putting some of my own money into it because it took so long and Richard was difficult to work with and then it was hard getting all the archival materials together. Uh, and the music, we used a lot of very expensive, uh, authentic period pop songs in the film. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was not like it was a great financial uh, uh, situation for me, but it was a film that I'm proud of. So, uh, yeah. It's sensational. How did you feel when it won an award at the Tribeca Film Festival? Um, I think actually, I have to be honest, it was the runner up for the audience uh, award. That's still an award. It, it, that's still an award, but it's, <laughs> so I was, I was very happy. You know, you want to win the, the, the first place, but runner up was still good. So we were happy to. Yeah, win. look, you, you, we're, we're still on the up. podium. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, what's that feeling like, you know, being on a massive platform like Amazon Prime? Because I think allegedly there was conversations that Andy was saying about Netflix maybe and Amazon Prime. It, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that was a huge break for the film and Amazon, you know, before we act, even finished the film, there's a, a market in New York um, uh, called the, the um, uh, uh, independent film market where they, you know, invite documentary filmmakers and other filmmakers to come and show their products to different buyers and distributors. And we showed a rough cut of Shadow Man at that, at that market, the IFP. And uh, the, I was very lucky, you know, you make appointments with, you, you ask to speak to certain distributors and we asked to speak to the Amazon rep at the meeting and uh, she came and saw the, you know, watched the trailer of the film and got excited. And that was the beginning before we even, you know, had completion money to, to, to finish the film, Amazon showed their interest. And we didn't actually get the final deal with them until later, until we were accepted at the Tribeca Film Festival. But they were the first, you know, serious player to show interest in the film. And that made a lot to getting it finished. So, you know, we're very, very proud and happy to have that Amazon connection. Massive achievement, well done, uh, Oren, and uh, great accolade. Um, let's talk about something that I feel really excited about, the potential, or should I say, is happening, the Shadow Man documentary turned into a Hollywood movie. Andy Valmobile has asked me to ask you these questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm working with a, a fabulous producer, uh, Ann Harrison, who produced the acclaimed movie, um, uh, the Danish Girl, and um, uh, and other you know wonderful uh, big Hollywood Hollywood films. And she worked with Martin Scorsese for a number of years. She is the lead producer, and I'm working with her to develop uh, a fiction story based on Richard's life and really the period that we you know concentrate in the in the middle of the film, the period from his arrival in New York until the kind of Venice Biennale when he kind of goes through a change and sort of drops out. And that's the sort of period that the fiction film we think will focus on. And we're in conversations with some top directors. Uh, the film is actually being looked at right now by somebody we're very, very excited about. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, that will be the first step towards getting a screenplay done and having the film come out, you know, within a, a, a few years. You know, it's very slow. It's the, the process of making feature films is much slower by necessity than the process of making documentaries. With documentaries, a story happens, and if you don't act quickly, it's gonna go away and you'll, you'll lose it. But with fiction films, the market is so competitive. There's so many different you know, avenues towards making a film. 
the bankable directors and stars are such in such great demand that it's hard to lock people up for a specific time period. So even after you get one element, then you can you know lose that element and have to find another element. And it's very it's to line up all the the pieces in a row and get them at the right time is a is a painstaking and lengthy process. But we're very excited that it's going to happen, and we just think it's a story that people are excited by, and uh, that uh, we're we're very close now to making it happen. It's going to be electrifying. It's going to be so good. Um, million dollar question. Who's going to be playing Richard Hamilton? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the challenge is the story that we want to tell is the younger part of Richard's career. So we thought, originally we were thinking, well, we had to have somebody who could span and, you know, play Richard as a young man and also play Richard later in the, towards the end of his life. And then we'd have to get an actor who's going to have to do all that. And then we just figured, no, that's crazy. Let's just find someone who's a great young star and get them excited about playing Richard and show him at his prime. Uh, so there, well, you know, I was going to say someone that can go from young to old, Brad Pitt, Benjamin Button. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. He can nail it. Well, he was a few years younger when he did Benjamin Button, but uh, he would be a yeah. good Richard. He could do Richard. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've considered a, a wide, a wide range of people. So I think people for now should put your favorite actor in your imagination and imagine them playing Richard. And, uh, Johnny Depp, Brad Pitt. I mean, if there's there's so many that could potentially play him, but yeah, that'd be really exciting to see. Um, I know you've got influence over this, and I'm going to say it in a jovial way, but I mean it. I absolutely mean it. Um, I want to be in this in this film as a, as a cameo <laughs> somehow. Now, I'll tell you why. I've got an argument. If you type in Richard Hamilton into Google, I yeah. guarantee you right now I'll be one of the first people to come up. So I play a very significant role in this in this man's market, okay? It's because I believe in it. You know, I love it. I believe it. I live and breathe it. I mean, my wife, you know, is sick and tired of me talking about it, but it's just become my life since 2014. So if there's any way, Oren, <laughs> I, I will pay you to just... I could be anything from the drug dealer to the boxer to, I know... Some other artist, I could be a locksmith, I could be anything. We'll, 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 find, your, we'll find your part, don't worry. Yeah, I could even be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, seriously, I would, I would love to be in it somehow. But uh, on a more serious note, you know, once it comes out in the next few years, I believe it's going to pull in a brand new demographic to the Hamilton market. Well, it's, you know, it's a great story and it's great work that speaks to people. And I think the more people that are exposed to Richard's work and the more people that know about his incredible struggles and how he surmounted them to become a, uh, you know, the great artist that he was, I think it's the work is just going to get more and more popular. There's no question. For sure. Why don't I just ask you a few more things? Uh, Cause I know you're probably quite a busy man. 2017 was such a high year and low year for, 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 for Hamilton really. Uh, number one, uh, you know, the Tribeca Film Festival, what a great achievement. Second of all, one of these pieces was put into the permanent collection of the MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, which is, I mean, what a monumental thing. And then third of all, sadly, he passed away. Um, do you remember where you were when you got the phone call when Richard Hamilton died? Yeah, I'd, and I'm embarrassed. I don't remember who called me, but I remember... Um, 
uh, I was right here in this, I've not in this room, then in the room next, next door. Uh, um, and it was early in the morning and someone had, had been notified. And um, uh, I think it was possibly, it was likely that it was, is Christine Woodward who, who knew and called me up and told me. Um, and I was, you know, I couldn't believe it. I mean, the joke was when we were making the movie, every day we went to film, somebody said, well, you know, Richard is so screwed up and he's so sick, he's <clears throat> gonna be dead in a week. And then that went on for the seven plus years that we were working on the film. <laughs> and he never, you know, and he outlived other people who were around during that period. And so it became a joke that he was indestructible and that he would never die. And so I think the, abrupt way in which he did go and the unfortunate <clears throat> circumstances which surround his death, which, you know, suggest to me that he might have been saved if he'd been in a different situation. Um, you know, it was quite tragic and sudden and surprising. Um, and as, if I don't remember the, the timing, I think I'm right about this. I think he died a week or a few weeks before that show at MoMA. So he never got to see his work in that venue, which would have meant so much to him, you know, and it was by far the most substantial work at the show. I mean, they had work by Boscat and work by Herring, but it was nothing like the painting by Richard that was at the show because in the period that was being covered, his work was much farther advanced. It was like a great full-blown Richard Hamilton figure, life-size figure. The Basquiat stuff was just some like words on a piece of paper and the Herring thing too was like a little cartoon. So, it just showed that he was, you know, kind of the first to the table. He was the advanced artist in that in that trio when they began their the, careers. The funny thing is, how you speak about Hamilton with like him being so resilient, like clearly someone who's been addicted to drugs and a bit of an abusive lifestyle, self-abuse, uh, you know, and he had the cancer and that kind of thing. But the funny thing is, it, it almost he just could smash through all those obstacles and just keep on carrying on. Because there's so many people that I've dealt with from Andy and, and a few others um, who spoke about how resilient he was and he just kept on coming forward. It just seemed like he was never going to die. And that was the known thing. You know, people had a bit of a joke about it. It was quite a jovial kind of kind of bit, bit of banter. And then when the phone call came through for another guy I know, I was almost quite shocked. It was, the sadness didn't even hit initially because it was almost like, you didn't believe it. It was like, no, that no. Because I think even once or twice people said it, like before he died, you know, because maybe someone heard a rumor. Yeah, there were rumors. There were fake rumors around that he died. Yeah, and and then when it came through, uh, it, and it was genuine, then then I felt a little bit, you know, sort of like sad. But then I also knew there was going to be a big rush into the Hamilton market, and I was wondering how that was going to affect things. Um, what was your initial feeling like? I mean, do you actually remember the feeling? Was it really sad and down or was it, was it something well, else? It was, it was sad. I mean, it was, you know, this could, with Richard, you felt all the time that this could, could have been avoided. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I think people, there's been an age of art since the kind of beat poets, since, uh, you know, um, William Burroughs, you know, wrote his book Junkie and sort of celebrated the idea that drugs were somehow liberating. There's been this myth in the world that artists thrive on drugs. Um, and I think it, you know, it really is a myth and that artists are often attracted to drugs 
for the same reasons that they, you know, lose themselves in their art. They're trying to find another way of communicating. Um, but uh, I heard a, um, an interesting interview uh, just last week with the British actor Bill Nye, who's one of my favorite, favorite actors of all time. Uh, and in the interview, he said, you know, he'd learned a few things in his career that he wished he'd known much earlier on. And the first rule that he wished he'd known earlier on was that drugs are the enemy of art. And, uh, you know, I really think it's true. I think that, you know, people used to think that Charlie Parker, the great jazz musician, was uh, amazing because he was a heroin addict. And a whole generation of jazz musicians, you know, became heroin addicts because Charlie Parker was not realizing he was a genius in spite of the fact that he was a heroin addict, not because he was a heroin addict. And I think that's true of Richard. I think Richard was a genius in spite of the fact that he was, you know, had this monkey on his back that made it, you know, incredibly difficult for him to live a healthy, normal lifestyle and a more and a more ful fulfilling, fruitful lifestyle. I think he would have done even greater work had he not been encumbered by his addiction. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, but he was brave to fight on and to struggle in spite of that. And, and the other, as I said, demons, psychological demons and other things that he had to deal with. It's an interesting topic because if you look at Amy Winehouse, um, Whitney Houston, George Michael, uh, even Michael Jackson, I mean, I, he wasn't known for like heroin and cocaine, I don't think, but even prescribed painkillers, which is drugs. Hamilton, Jean-Michel Basquiat, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of painters, music artists, fashion. I mean, uh, I interviewed a guy called Gary McQueen, who is the nephew of Alexander McQueen, Ali McQueen, and there was clearly a lot of drug taken there. Yeah. Is there an argument that it takes an artist to a different realm where they can get a different amount of inspiration to produce work? And that's why some works have a bit more flair. I think if you look at the careers of most artists, you look at the career before they become addicted and the career after they become addicted, almost universally, you'll see a fall off in the quality of the work and it becomes more inconsistent. It doesn't get better. I mean, there are, they doesn't mean they don't rise to higher achievements later in their career sometimes, um, but that's, partly because they're evolving as artists. And I wouldn't put it directly. It's often in periods when they do clean up. I mean, if you look at Amy Winehouse, I think her best music was when she was able to sort of pull herself together and, and be clean for a while. Um, uh, you know, and I mean, I'm not as much an expert on her career, but um, you know, it's, it's as with, with Richard as I think, you know, it's similar to the situation that, that, uh, um, uh, Keith Richards talks about in his his memoir, where he says he was able to very carefully maintain how much drugs he used. And that's one reason he survived and a lot of other people didn't. He was careful. He knew what he could take. He knew what he couldn't do. And then at an important point in his life, he got clean. You know, it's one reason the Rolling Stones lasted as long as they did is because Keith Richards got clean. If he hadn't, yeah. he'd been dead too. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, as I said, I think that it's true that, that artists are attracted to drugs. Um, it's partly the lifestyle. It's partly, as you said, the, the pain-killing aspect. I mean, there's no question that Prince died young because his body was totally smashed up by the, by the abuse that he put it through as a performer. 
And I think Richard put his body through tremendous abuse doing his, his art. And he needed a kind of, they were self-medicating. And I think artists also often self-medicate for psychological issues with drugs. Rather than being treated in some more traditional way, which would be safer, they're self-medicating, dealing with their problems, dealing with their issues by taking drugs to forget about the problem part so they can keep on working. Um, but look, I know you'll get a different story from other people, but that's sort of my, my deep feeling is that uh, the romanticization of drugs as a secret to good art is an is a empty argument. Okay. Um, I mentioned before we kicked off, we are doing over the fourth anniversary of Hamilton's death, a private screening of the Shadow Man documentary at the Hanyard Hotel, which is an absolute amazing hotel in Soho, in London. We have myself and Nemo Labrizi, who's featured on the documentary, doing a Q&A, and we would love for you to come over. We will pay for your flights. We will pay for your accommodation. We will treat you like an absolute king, because you are. And we would love you to be over here. Um, so hopefully we can see you. That's an incredible invitation. It's going to be very hard to say no. I think it's more, much more likely I will say yes. I just have to make sure my other film that I'm working on will allow me to get away those days. But I'm looking forward to seeing you in person and to seeing the film in London. Yeah, amazing. And also bring your, 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 your other half um, if she wants to come over as well. That'd be great. Um, one, one, one more thing. Is there anything that you're doing right now that people should look out for uh, online on your social media? What, what are you up to right now? Well, two things. One is my new film uh, called On Broadway, which covers a similar period in New York City, beginning in the late 60s, early 70s, that Shadow Man does. And it looks at how Times Square and New York City was going down the drain, and so was the Broadway theater. And then it's the amazing story of the comeback of Broadway and how it reinvented itself over the next 50 years to become you know, the most successful theater industry in the world again, and to be thriving, having its, its best season ever in 2018-19. And now Broadway is trying to come back again, where here we are in 2021, and Broadway is just reopening this week. So my film on Broadway just opened in theaters in America. It'll be coming out soon in the UK and in other places around the world. Um, and it will be, we'll have, we'll be announcing soon its streaming release. So please look for that. And then I'm just starting a new film about climate change because if we don't do something about that, nothing else is going to matter. So uh, uh, I'll be, you know, talking more about that film in the months ahead. But but please look forward to to seeing what we can, you know, tell the world about climate change. In my uh, social media, my YouTube, uh, all my platforms, I'm going to be tagging tagging you. But for the audience's purpose, or for, you know, for their benefit, where can they find you on social media, or where could they locate you if they want to follow your journey? Um, so I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, let me get you the links. Okay. Cause I, I'm, 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 I'm a sort of terrible social media person because my wife, who's a genius does most of it for me, but I will share those links with you. So you have them. Perfect. Um, one more question. Yeah. Um, when I first started my podcast, I came up with a mantra and it goes like this, be happy never content now around jacoby i've got my my own version of what that means to try and stick by every single day if i were to ask you orion jacoby what does be happy never content mean to you i mean that's my motto too it's like enjoy your life but don't stop trying to be better trying to do something new that's exciting and challenging yourself 
and trying to help the world be a better place. Um, but don't forget to smell the roses and enjoy the world while you're while you're here. Beautiful answer. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I'm very humbled that you said yes to coming to the podcast. Um, I was expecting to hunt you down for many months and years <laughs> before you finally said yes. But after a few calls, you, you agreed, which is great. And we've both, been, <laughs> we've both been trying to contribute to the Shadow Man's uh, future of his market and, and Richard Hamilton's market. And I can't wait for you to come over because when you come into our studio, you will find it like Aladdin's cave, but just for Hamilton. You can see all the very, very best works. I mean, it's, 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 it's a great place to be. That's exciting. Well, I look forward to, to seeing it and to meeting you in person. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day and all the uh, success for your documentaries and films coming up in the future. And I hope to see you in October. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Cheers.